0: back in here. Come join us. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Good to hear the conversations happening. It's good to be together. I, for one, love the snow, so I'm just cheering for this. Um, uh, I'll be praying for a lot of snow this winter. Uh, you're welcome to pray the other way. Uh, that's where uh, diversity but inclusion uh, fits into our equation here. Uh, so welcome. Glad you're here. I um, I'm so glad the ladies had such a great time at the women's retreat. Hey, men, uh, you will not be left out, okay? So we have been studying um, uh, through this uh idea of belong, believe, become. As the church began two years ago, we dreamed of a place in which belonging could come first. Uh, but uh, naturally, uh, we move uh, from a place of belonging in a faith community towards uh, a posture of belief. Um, and in time, God does transformational work in our lives. So we've been working through this, uh, this series here, trying to flesh out uh, some of the details of, of this idea of belong, believe, become, we've begun to think of it in terms of like a discipleship flow. We create com- communities of belonging. We create shared cultures and shared experiences that lead towards belief. And so we begin with radical inclusion and love, the ways we live our lives amongst people uh, here in our community, the people that we come in contact with. We talked about uh, the church, a, a place of belonging, um, the open invitation of Christ and the open invitation of, of the church to the world around us. Um, we begin to talk about belief a couple weeks ago. Uh, we spoke of experiences that lead towards belief, specifically discipleship, the way Jesus discipled and our invitation to follow, uh, Jesus as well. Um, last week we spoke of that, uh, moment of, uh, belief and, um, a, a moment of conversion of faith and salvation and hope in life. And this week we come to what we believe, like the doctrinal stuff of the church. And let me tell you why I've stressed so much and, uh, spent more time studying uh, this week than I do often in a month. It's been unbelievable because from the beginning, we, we hoped to not be defined too much by theology as a church. And I'll tell you why. Uh, many of us have been a part of other churches. Uh, many of us know kind of the, the landscape of uh, Western Protestant faith, that many different denominations are divided over minutiae in theology, right? That so often theology and this stamp of I have it all right and everyone else has it wrong is what divides the church. It fractures us in tragic ways as the body of Christ, right? And so so from the beginning, we, we said, man, we don't want to be defined theologically. Many of you found us, you saw a sign or a, a, a sticker in someone's window, you went online to look up, so what do they believe, right? That's often one of the, the first things. And for a long time, we kind of even resisted putting many beliefs on on there. Um, but we came to a point where we, we said we have to uh, we have to be transparent about uh, who we are and what we stand for. Uh, we have to invite people that want to come on that mission to participate, and so we begin to go a little bit deeper. And today we're going to go. Uh, we're going to continue that that story of going deeper theologically. Um, if you loved like college courses and lectures, this is the day for you. Just a lot of information. I mean, just an overload. Danny's going to be in good shape here. Yeah. Um, uh, Craig could be teaching this, you know, so, so some of us uh, love this stuff, but um, uh, some of us don't. Uh, for, for some of us, this will be like uh, reaffirming. Like, yeah, these are the things that I believe as we as we talk on uh we'll, we'll talk on five main subjects here today. We're going to speak about what we believe about the Bible. We're going to speak about what we uh, believe on the Trinity, on salvation. So these are three, like, um, uh, mainstays. Like these are, these are core to Christian, uh, theology and understanding. Um, and then, and then I'm going to, instead of going on just more of the major subjects that, uh, that many of us as Christians believe, I wanted to talk about two that are distinctive about the vine. Two, two pieces of theology that, um, that, that, that in some ways set us apart, not in a negative way, uh, but that that are distinctive to the way we think about uh, church and the ways that we operate. So, so that's where we're going to go today. Uh, get ready, buckle in, or just sit back and relax. I don't know. You can get really excited, or you can just lounge. Either way is good, uh, because we have a long way to go today, and I'm excited about it. Let's talk first about the Bible. Uh, what better uh, source could we quote about the Bible than the Bible itself? Actually, that's a little ironic, but we're going to do it anyways. Second Timothy chapter three. Let's talk about our belief in scripture. Second, second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 says, All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right. So second Timothy, uh, Chapter three, verse sixteen, lays out for us a, a, a little bit of the understanding of of what the roles that Scripture plays in our lives, and um, and the importance of it in our individual lives and in the life of the church. It, it speaks of God's breath. We believe this that Scripture is inspired by God, and we believe it to be authoritative in our lives. Uh, but but here's the trick: when you use Scripture to quote itself, like scripture to validate itself, Uh, many people around us, uh, many of our atheists and agnostic friends would say, well, that's not a valid source to speak of it. Uh, to, to speak of, that's not a val- valid source to reference on the subject, right? And the question often becomes in our conversations: Well, how did we get the Bible, right? How did we get the 66 books that we that we have? And I want to just briefly uh, mention how that took place. Um, so, uh, by by three or four hundred years before the time of Christ, the Old Testament scriptures had had been summed up and packaged into uh, what we read as Protestants uh, today, as, as Christians today, what we find in our Bibles today. Um, now, the New Testament is another story. Uh, how did the canon come to be? The canon is what's referred to as uh, the um, entire 66 books of the Bible that we have. Well, there was a few criteria key in choosing uh, which books would be in the canon and which wouldn't. First was authorship. Uh, was it someone that knew Jesus that experienced Jesus in a personal way and therefore was an authority on the subject? Secondly, um, acceptance by the uh, early Christians by the first century church. Did the first ch- century church uh, gravitate to and realize this book to be consistent with, the third point consistent with the message of Scripture? So there's a, a few criteria involved and and um, by three hundred and ninety seven um, uh, the um, the priests and and the bishops of the church came together at Carthage um, uh, for a council in which they would confirm the uh, the canon and confirm these sixty six books uh, using those criteria um, they came and, and they Put their stamp of approval on this canon, now some would argue that well, see, people just chose the books that they wanted uh, in there, right it, it, they got to craft their own message, uh, but in fact, the process was quite different. The process was born of the first century church, was born of the people that knew Jesus, who followed Jesus and um, and the people who who came to trust in the words of Paul the story that Matthew and Mark wrote of Jesus life and uh, and so in in 397 uh, that canon was confirmed So we believe, we trust that this is God's authoritative word. We trust that it is vital and valuable in our lives. We trust in the statement in 2 Timothy that says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servants of God may be equipped for good works. I think that's beautiful. And as we speak about each of these beliefs, we trust in Scripture. We consider it authoritative in our lives. Um, I want to I want to glance briefly at the beauty and the application of each of these um, primary pieces of theology. So, the beauty and the ap- application of a, a Scripture, a, a, a God's Word, that is authoritative in our life, is that we have a trustworthy source. We have a uh, tried-and-true, thousands-of-year-old experience that speaks powerfully into our lives. It gives us the opportunity, uh, to hear God's voice, to receive guidance from people that knew Christ, to receive guidance from God in His Word. We're not left alone. We're not islands. We don't make this up as a church, like this is who we are and this is what we believe, but we have an authoritative source in our lives that is for our betterment, that, that invites us to participate in God's good work, that we would be equipped for good, good works is the purpose. Of this book that we have. So we have the Bible. This is going to be choppy as I move from one to the other, but we want to hit three main tenets of belief. Um, from the Bible, we move to the Trinity. Now, this is an incredibly complex topic, okay? Um, one of the reasons it's incredibly complex is because it's not a biblical term. Did you know that? The term Trinity doesn't exist in the Bible. Uh, instead, the, the um, theology and, and the belief of, in the Trinity is an experienced theology. So let's kind of track it for a moment, uh, look at Father, Son, and Spirit, the three parts of the Trinity, and then try to sum it up a little bit as to what we're talking about when we speak of the Trinity. We believe in the Trinity and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now Israel was monotheistic. That means that Israel believed that there was one God, one God who created, one God who ruled. And Israel was very unique in the world a couple thousand years ago in that belief. You see, the Greeks, they had thousands of gods, right? They had hundreds of gods. And you could worship the god of agriculture or the god of uh, the sky, the god of the sun, right? You could, you could worship all of these different gods. But Israel was unique in that they were adamantly monotheistic. There is only one God. God. And so you see it in uh in, in their scriptures in Deuteronomy six verse four, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Okay, so Israel was adamantly monotheistic. But Israel became very challenged by the experience of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit in the first century. You see, because as Jesus came, this question of humanity and divinity came on the table. So who is this man, Jesus? Now, Jesus made radical claims of himself. In John fourteen six, he's quoted as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. See, he's claiming um, both the authority and the approval of God and this begins to challenge israelite belief right uh we are monotheistic we believe in only one god and we will not budge on that subject but this man jesus who's human like we know the place he was born we know his his family right uh they, they say but this human man is claiming the authority and the approval of a heavenly father Jesus said um that the story of God's work con- would would continue that as Jesus moved on from earth that that God will will work through the holy spirit right? Uh, we're catching glimpses of this developing theology of a trinity. In John chapter 16, verse 7, uh, Jesus said, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jump forward to verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. You see, Jesus, uh, while he's on earth, not only does he claim, I am uh, approved by an, an authoritative voice of God, but he said, it doesn't end here. You see, the Holy Spirit is coming, and, and it'll play powerful roles in your lives and that of the church. Now, this wasn't the first that the Israelite people had heard of uh, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, very beginning of their scriptures, they'd heard of Ruah, the, the Hebrew word for the spirit. It means like uh, the wind or the breath, right? The breath of God. And, and in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, it says that, um, the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So they've heard this idea of, of the spirit of God that was involved in creation that existed in the beginning. Uh, but their experience in Acts, chapter 2, the, when we read in Acts, their experience at Pentecost of the Holy Spirit coming in power, well, this begins to transform the way they will understand God and his work in the world. It says this briefly, uh, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. You see, uh, Israel who believed in one God was challenged with the experience of Jesus. They witnessed his resurrection, and they questioned what could this mean? He claimed to be authoritative, to be God in human form. And then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and powerful things begin to happen in the church. And so for the next few hundred years, the church asks the questions of what does this mean? You see, people who had once uh, known Jesus, uh, people that had known his birthplace and known his family, begin to start praying to Jesus in hopes of salvation. Like they knew him in physical form, the humanity, and yet they were beginning to trust him in spiritual form. You can imagine the challenge. And in time, the church had to adopt language that would that would uh, be comprehensive, language that could pull together this vast understanding of a single God, but in the form of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is where the conversation of the Trinity comes about. Um, people have to put to words the experience that God has brought before them in the first century. So the Nicene um, and the Constantinople um, uh, gatherings the, uh, and the creeds written at them is where it began to come together. The language began to come together. These are in 325 and 381 A.D. And uh, and it went something like this. So there was still debate. The language that was coming about in, in our Christian circles in the church was um, God is one being who exists in three persons. There is only one essence of being or being of God which all three persons share um, in entirety. Further, each person is God in himself. Okay, so that's a language that began to develop uh, a, a realized theology. Three persons of the Godhead, three who are one, and there was debate as to which to emphasize the oneness of God or the threeness, you know, the, the three persons. Um, and throughout history, it's been a difficult concept Uh to um, to define terribly well. I'll share with you a couple of modern theologians continually trying to try to put into words the way this works. And by the way, if this seems like scattered, like oh, why can't we just define it? Let's keep in mind that we're talking about a God far bigger than our comprehension, let alone the language we have to speak. And so hopefully today, as we talk about the Trinity and our belief in a God and three persons, rather than distracting or or, or causing us difficulty in in our belief, it's an invitation to realize a God who is far more vast than our ability to describe in simple terms. So here's what a few uh, modern people are saying on the subject of the Trinity, um, Uh, They're speaking of the social trinity. uh, Three divine persons who coexist as one God in a a unity sublimely unique, best likened to that of a family or a community, a society for example, the church so the term persons in the Trinity gets difficult and so some today are speaking of it in terms of like a a society, right like a church, all the parts come together to be one that's good language for it Uh, I'm going to skip what Karl Barth had to say and, and jump up here for Millard Erickson's quote, I'm looking at our time and realizing I cannot not go into this kind of detail um sadly but let's talk about it more Vine 101 uh other classes and, and in our weekly studies we can go into a little bit deeper. But he um uh Millard Erickson uh, has done a remarkable job and, and I'll just hit the highlighted words because that's all we have time for in the moment. Uh, but he speaks of the community, this Trinity as a communion, uh, that there is union in God himself that is dependent upon uh, the life of each. Um, uh, he speaks of close relationship and agape love, self-giving love. He speaks of the closest and most intimate of relationships that's possible. He speaks of equality and that all participate. And as I talk about it, we'll, we'll wrap up on the Trinity here. Um, as we talk about, well, you know, what's the application of it? What's the beauty in this understanding of a trinity? It is this. A God who exists in community invites us to exactly that. It invites us to community, to relationships that are edifying, um, to uh, um, to agape love. He invites us to know self-giving love. He invites us to know equality. He invites us to a place in which all can participate. Right, the, the way we will define God will drastically affect the way we will understand ourselves as individuals and as a church, rather than thinking of our of our isolated um ourselves in isolated Western terms, we 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 begin to realize that God invites us to something much deeper, something that revolves around love and community uh, and, and a self-giving nature. Alright, so uh third uh subject we want to touch base on was salvation. And I'll be fairly brief on this one. Uh, we'll speak on it in fairly general terms. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says this, uh, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, by uh, not by our works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, Did you know this last week was the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther uh, nailing his 95 theses onto um, the uh, castle church um, uh, 500 years ago? He nailed up these theses. And one of his primary arguments, and what many of these 95 arguments against the church had to do with, was uh, the the subject of salvation, um, particularly the selling of indulgences, uh, which you're, you're, smart people. Uh, you all have Google and can look that up later. Uh, so I won't go into detail on, on the subject of indulgences. Um, but Martin Luther began to bring, uh, 500 years ago, the church's vision back around to this Ephesians 2 sort of understanding. Um, that God had paid the price, that, that it is a free gift offered through faith. And so we believe that salvation is God's free gift offered to all those who will accept, all those who will put their faith in Jesus. The beauty of the application, We know how hard we each work in the week, right? Each week, we pour ourselves out, and each week, there are things left undone. Do you ever just feel insufficient and unable to accomplish it all? Well, it's the same story in salvation. No matter how much good I do, I just can't be perfect. I just can't accomplish it. And the beauty of an understanding of salvation through faith, a free gift offered from God, is that it's not all about you. It's all about God, and it's all about what Jesus has done for us. Uh, roll forward, and I'm, I'm gonna have to skip this one as well. Um, uh, but, ahead, keep going there, Craig, yeah. Uh, so, um, William Platchard, I didn't show my bibliography at the beginning, did I? I skipped past that. Uh, but William Platchard, uh, History of Christian Theology has some beautiful things to, to say about salvation, and it is that only God could meet God's criteria. Right, And so God uh, sent himself in human form that he could take on both the human and the spiritual aspect of salvation and hope. And in that, we find that free gift and that hope. All right, friends, let's shift gear a little bit. That was some of the major subjects, and I did not have near enough time to cover them comprehensively, but I wanted to say we believe that the Bible is God's authoritative word. Uh, We believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we believe that salvation is God's free gift offered to each of us. I wanted to get that out because that's pivotal stuff when it comes to faith. The last two subjects I'll touch base on, um, are, are are distinctives uh, of who we are. Uh, different churches and different uh, denominations and people of faith would take different postures on these things, uh, but I wanted to lay out a couple distinctive ones, and by the way, ones that, that we're really proud of who we are. We are a people that strive for equality. We believe equality to be at the heart of the gospel. Um, in church terms, this is called egalitarian. Uh, that means all people are created equally and invited to participate equally. In church terms, currently, this speaks most specifically to the subject of men and women, uh, participating equally in a church. Now, if you've been around church long, um, Uh, You know some of the hurt that has, uh, that has been born over the years of the subject of men and women and equality. In the first century, Paul spoke uh, to the subject and uh, he spoke as an Israelite, in a patriarchal, that is a male dominated and ruled society, in a patriarchal society, he spoke of the limitations on women in that context. Now some would say those limitations apply today. Uh, we don't, and I'll and I'll I'll tell you why. Um because in the first century, Paul was incredibly liberating towards women. Though they couldn't learn in the universities, he said, but women will learn alongside men. He was incredibly limiting. Uh, he was incred- incredibly liberating, but he was also limiting uh, in his cultural context, limiting saying that in this context, this is the way the church ought to operate. Now, this is not the only subject he did that on. Remember when he talks about food uh sacrificed to idols, Gentiles and people of all the nations that don't have all the food restrictions of the Israelites, but he says, When you come together as a body, don't allow the things you eat to be a stumbling Point, right culturally and, and as a church in the context of who we are this is a destructive issue and so he limits the freedoms of people for the sake of the greater and I believe it's the exact same thing that he's doing on the subject of uh, equality and men's and women's roles so look at me with Galatians three uh, this is what we live into as a people we live into this reality it says this um, so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith for you, uh, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I believe the eternal kingdom principle that is what God is striving for in this world is described so succinctly here as he says there is equality and there is no difference. In Christ, we are all born into that, and tragically, uh, for cultural reasons and and for many other contextual reasons, there are times that this equality does not exist and is not lived out in the life of the church or a community. I praise God that we live in a culture and a context in which this can we can strive for this that equality can can be at the heart of who we are so as a people and as a church we live into this idea of equality we live into galatians 3 saying in christ there's no difference in in, in nationality in gender but in christ we're all one last thing i want to touch base on today is diversity diversity uh, not just s- Celebrating diversity, not just in the sense of, uh, allowing different people in one space. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not just about diversity for the sake of dis- diversity, but instead it's diversity and celebrating diversity in the pursuit of equality and inclusion, right? It goes beyond just the allowing different people into a space, but what I want to touch on is like the gospel imperative that we ought to strive for diversity, inclusion, and equality. So there's this beautiful scene in Revelation chapter 7. Um, and uh, and the author has received this vision of heaven, and and it says this, uh, it says, After this I looked, and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Into the Lamb, so it's this heaven, this scene of of heaven in which uh, all people are celebrating God. And did you did you notice who those people were? Uh, They were of every nation, of every tribe, of every people, and of every language. This is this incredibly beautiful scene of what heaven might be like. And just imagine if, as a church and as a faith community, we strove for less than that. I think it is the biblical imperative that we strive for diversity, equality. Uh, the story of Jesus is one in which he elevates the marginalized. The furthest are the ones brought into the center of his ministry, and I believe as a people we're invited to that. Um, Christine Pohl, uh, in, in her book, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition, uh, makes some remarkable points. She says, it is the Christian way. Um, that a uh, dynamic expression of vibrant Christianity, hospitality is at the heart of who we ought to be. Often in our Western culture, we think of hospitality as like this secondary thing that has to be accomplished, but she says, no, hospitality is a dynamic expression of vibrant Christianity. Um, in our individualistic and, and commercial society, sometimes receiving from others actually feels degrading does that make sense? Like, to, to receive something for someone else feels like, oh, so I couldn't have done it myself, or it feels degrading. How backwards is that? You see, historically, table fellowship, eating a meal together, hospitality, was a way of recognizing equality, and the Christians used it in this beautiful way in which you didn't have to be on the same social standing as me. A slave owner and a slave in the Christian context could sit at a table together and share a meal. Hospitality was at the heart of what was happening in the first century. And in our pursuit of diversity uh, towards inclusion and equality, hospitality has to be recovered as a primary Christian practice, right? We have to learn to love not just each other and not just the people most like ourselves, but the least Around us, the least amongst us. So, on this uh, uh, final thing, Jesus uh, in this judgment scene, Jesus is um, uh, accepting his followers into heaven. in In the book of Matthew, he uh, um, he says, "Welcome to your inheritance," because when I was hungry. You gave me something to eat when I was thirsty. Um, you gave me something to drink without clothes. You, you clothed me. You, you cared for me, Jesus says. And the people receiving this hope and the salvation, they say, but when did I see you hungry or thirsty? And Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these... You did for me. That's the kind of hospitality. That's a kind of diversity towards inclusion and equality that we strive for as a people because when we do it for others, we do it for Jesus himself is what he claimed. The beauty is that you, yeah, each, each of you is highly valued. We are inherently good, lovable people to be appreciated. The beautiful thing about the application of diversity and striving towards it is that it creates an environment in which um, uh, the people around us, our coworkers and our friends and our neighbors, we can say, you are highly valued, you are highly loved by God, I appreciate you deeply. This is what hospitality and diversity and equality invite us to as a people. It means that when quite often we'd be fearful to invite a friend to come to church because, you know, they'd kind of be the outsiders, when diversity and inclusion is the goal, we have a beautiful platform in which to invite and share the love of Jesus with the world around us. That, I believe, is a beautiful thing. All right, friends, we've talked about three major tenets of faith. Uh, We believe that Scripture is God-breathed, and that it's useful in our lives. We believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and we believe that salvation is God's free gift offered through faith. We as a church uh, strive towards equality, inclusion, and diversity because we dream of reflecting the kingdom of heaven, that, that heaven scene in which people of all nations and all different types come together. Let me say to you then this morning as I close out, Thank you for being people who strive for those sorts of things. Thank you for for being people willing to set aside our societal norms that break down. Friends, our nation needs desperately more people who will say diversity is good, right? Our nation desperately needs people who will say people are inerrantly good and lovable. Our nation desperately needs people that say equality will be what we strive for as a people, and I feel so blessed to get to, as a faith community, say those things. We strive towards equality. We love people because they are inherently good and created in God's image. So let me say thank you for being a part of that. I am incredibly excited about the way God transforms us, our community, and the world as we continue to strive for things that are beautiful and in his plan for his beloved people. Let's pray about that as we close out. Father God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this time. We thank you for an opportunity, Father, uh, to look at belief and though theology is not always fun uh, and and though so, so often it's divisive, Father, I thank you um, that that you have given us an opportunity uh, to believe in you to believe in in your son to uh put high value in your your uh word father we thank you that uh you have offered us a free gift of salvation and hope and father out of all that out of all that love and goodness that you've given us help us to be people who strive uh to reach out to the least um who who step across societal norms father to demonstrate love to invite people to places of equality. Father, help us to give of ourselves to demonstrate that agape love that you have given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.